Our scripture reading this morning is in John 15, verses 7 through 11. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. By this, my Father is glorified, that you bear much fruit, and so prove to be my disciples. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments, and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and that your joy may be full. Let's go before the Lord and pray, and I'm just going to take one moment to be silent before the Lord, and I just encourage you to settle your hearts before him and let him speak to you. Lord Jesus, you are very great, and your word is very great. And I pray this morning that you would take your word and shape your people. I pray that you would teach us the pathway to bearing much fruit for the glory of your name and the fullness of our joy. I pray that we would be humble before you and willing to learn. I pray that we would be open before you. I pray that the vein between the branch and the vine would be wide open and constricted by nothing. I pray that we would not let arrogance keep us from receiving or sin keep us from receiving or distraction keep us from receiving, but I pray that we would open up the vein in the branch as wide as we can to receive from you, and I pray that your word would have great power in us today, Lord. Jesus, I ask you to shape a way of life in us, and I ask you to begin the process of bearing great fruit through us, beginning this day and going into the future. Lord, you are a great God, and you do great things through your eternal word for the glory of your name, and so we ask you now to demonstrate these things before us and not just to teach them to us. And by faith, Father, we thank you for what you'll do in Jesus' name, amen. As he was gathered with his disciples in the upper room of a home in the city of Jerusalem, Jesus dropped a bomb on them. He told them that he was not gonna be with them for very much longer. He told them that he was gonna be leaving them and he said that they would not be able to go with him, at least for the time being. They had great expectations of what was to come in the next few days, and so this news was devastating to them as we've seen over the last few weeks. Because he is their good shepherd, Jesus valued their feelings. It's a very important point, beloved. He did not look over their feelings, he did not dismiss their feelings, he did not shame them because of their feelings. He actually spoke into their anxiety. And he taught them how to move from being in a place where they were consumed with anxiety to a place where they would know his peace, his deep, abiding, lasting, eternal peace. And that way is so simple. It's just putting their faith in him. It was trusting him. It was knowing that he knew what he was doing when they did not know what he was doing. And having taught them how to move from anxiety to peace, he went on to tackle the issue of purpose because a lot of the reason they were feeling anxiety is because their sense of life's purpose, their sense of God's purposes were right in part, but in general, way off. They thought certain things were gonna happen in life, but God had other things in mind. And when those two things clashed, anxiety arose. And so Jesus taught them that the way to have purpose in life is to align your purposes with God's purposes. 
or if I could use his metaphor, he said that his father is a vine dresser and he is the vine and the disciples are branches and the way for the branches to connect to the purposes of God is to abide in that vine, is to be connected to Jesus. As we saw last week, the only way to get purpose in life is to be in communion with Jesus Christ. There's not another way. He is the true vine. He is the singular vine of life. If you want to have a sense of purpose and impact in life, you've got to get into communion with Jesus Christ. And having taught them that, he goes on in verses 7 to 11 to teach them now how to fulfill that purpose. In other words, he said, you want to bear fruit? Abide in me. Now, verses 7 through 11, I'm going to tell you exactly how to do that. I'm going to show you a pathway to fruit bearing that will change your life. And as Jesus revealed that pathway to those disciples in those days, beloved, I believe that he is here in this room right now with us to teach us that same pathway. Many of us have heard John 15 multiple times. We're familiar with it. And that's a beautiful thing, but it's a dangerous thing because you can sort of turn your mind off and say, I already know this stuff. But I want to promise you something. There's not one of us that's walking in the fullness of John 15, 7 to 11. Not one of us. There's not one of us that doesn't have growing to do, more fruit bearing to do, more joy to enter into. And so I pray with all my heart that we will come before Jesus right this moment as humble children, willing and ready to learn, wide open to what he would teach us. I'm praying that he would give us a heart to listen to these verses like we've never heard them before. Just sit at his feet. Let him teach us an amazing way of life. The promise of John 15, 7 is one of the most astonishing promises made to believers in the entire Bible. And so it's imperative that we not quickly pass over it or dismiss it because we find it hard to understand or maybe more to the point, we find it challenging to believe. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. We can't pass over it because in our busyness we're so distracted and in all, all of our gadgets and all the noise we're so distracted that we've, we've lost the desire and the discipline to draw near to Jesus and just let him speak to us. Beloved, we've got to slow our hearts down and slow our minds down and let Jesus speak to us now. Let him teach us now because I can promise you this. If we will listen to him carefully and actually walk in the way that he's about to lay before us today, we're going to experience a season of grace and blessing and power and fruit bearing like we have never experienced before. He is trying to teach us how to bear great fruit. And in my mind, it is no accident that he has this church in this text at this time of our lives together. In fact, it amazes me how he has controlled all of that. It is no coincidence that he's teaching us about communion with him and prayer and fruit bearing in this very season. He already touched on this theme in chapter 14, verses 12 to 14. If you look back there, Jesus said, truly, truly I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And as if that was not enough, he said, and greater works than these will he do. Why? Because I am going to the Father. How? Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do and that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. And then he returns to this exact same theme in chapter 15, verses 7 through 11. He gives us more wisdom. He gives us more contour. He's going deeper into the same theme. He's going to come back to the theme. Chapter 15, verse 16. Chapter 16, verses 23 and 24. Verses 26 and 27. Give me three different sermons there. 
And then in chapter 17, he is going to display before us what he has been teaching us. The high priestly prayer of Jesus in chapter 17, beloved, is many things, but one thing it is, is an example to us. He's trying to display the way of life that he's calling us into. And if God is gracious to us in this way and willing, we'll spend five weeks meditating on that prayer. And I want to say to you again, it is no accident that the Lord has us in this section of John at this time of our lives together as a church. And I pray with all my heart that we will be awake to what Jesus is doing I've been praying day by day that not a single soul, not a single soul in this church will be asleep to what Jesus is doing because he is up to glorious things. There's so many things in this season that I don't know. I don't know how everything's gonna work out as we move from a a temporary place to a permanent place. I don't know how much it's gonna cost. I don't know how much time it's gonna take. I don't know how hard it's gonna be. I don't know how easy it's gonna be. I don't know most anything, really, But this much I know. The time has come for us to move from one place to another. The time has come for us to have a more permanent home where we can be a center for worship and teaching and biblical counseling and healing and training and sending. The time has come for us to enter into a season of fruit bearing that we have not known in the past. But what I know above and beyond all of that is that more important than that is that Jesus wants to teach us his way of life that's at the root of all fruit bearing. All fruit is just implication of a way of life. And I think all this process of fruit bearing is actually just an excuse for him to teach us that way of life. And so again, I pray that we'll listen well. I pray that we'll be humbled now as we turn our hearts to his words. The promise of John 15, seven is very simple and also very profound. Ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. Chew on that one. That is an astonishing promise. There are three conditions for this promise. If any one of the three conditions are not met, the promise is not valid. Condition number one, abide in me. Condition number two, let my words abide in you. Condition number three, ask me whatever you wish. We have to ask with sincerity and with fervency. For each of these conditions, God has a part and we have a part. God's part is primary. God's part is the foundation. But our part is important. And I think in these verses, Jesus is more so focusing on our part and he's calling us to rise up and play our part on the foundation of God's part. And so let's look at each of these in turn. First of all, Jesus says that in order to bear his fruit, we must abide in him. As for God's part, the only reason we abide in Jesus is because God the Father causes us to abide in Jesus. Look at verse three. Jesus said to true disciples, he said to true branches, he said to people who truly believed in him, already you have been cleaned, or more literally, already you have been pruned through the word that I have spoken to you. The Father caused them to be in Christ through the words of Christ. And then if you look down at verse 16, Jesus says to his disciples, You did not choose me, but I chose you, and I appointed you that you should go bear fruit and that your fruit should abide, that it should last, that it should remain, that it should endure. We did not cause ourselves to be physically born. Anybody here who caused yourself to be physically born? If you are, you should write a book, start a seminar, go on a national speaking tour. Nobody caused themselves to be physically born. And nobody caused themselves to be spiritually born. The 
the earthly gift of life and the eternal gift of life is something God the Father gave to us by his grace and for his glory. And were it not for that, none of us would abide in Christ. Not one of us would remain in Christ. On the foundation of what God the Father has done for us, Jesus then commands us twice, verse four and verse seven, abide in me. To abide in him is to remain with him, is to remain loyal to him over time. It is to seek his face every day. It is to spend time with him and nourish our relationship with him week after month after year after decade. It is to learn what it means to love Jesus most and to put him first. It is to give full consent to his work in us. It's like a a branch whose vein in the vine is just wide open, wide open. And we say, Jesus, we love you and we want everything that you have for us. And so we open up our mind, we open up our heart, we open up our will to you. That's what it means to abide. There are two stages of abiding. Number one, when a person first hears the gospel of Jesus, when they hear the good news that by believing in Jesus you are no longer under the judgment of God and the eternal condemnation of God, but through belief in Jesus you are forgiven of your sin and freed from the consequences of your sin and given eternal life in God. When a person hears that news, they must receive the message and believe the news. They must embrace the Father. Ultimately, as I just got done saying, We believe because the Father causes us to believe. He puts us in the vine, and yet there is a legitimate choice that we have to make. And without that choice, we cannot abide in Christ. So I want to encourage you in the words of 2 Corinthians 13, 5, to examine yourself to see if you are in the faith. There are many people, Jesus says, who will say to him on the day of judgment, Lord, Lord, did we not do all kinds of great stuff in your name? And he's going to say to them, I did not know you. There are a lot of people who think that they know Jesus and they do not know Jesus. And so I would never want to breed the seeds of of, of, uh, unexamined doubt in your life. I would never want to cause you to tumble into a season of doubt about how God feels about you, but I think it's healthy for you to examine your heart to see if you're in Christ for this reason. If you don't abide in Christ, you cannot bear the fruit of Christ. It just can't happen. If you don't bear the fruit of Christ, or if you don't abide in Christ, the effects of his promises cannot take place in your life. In order for the promise of 15.7 to be valid for you, you must abide in Christ. And as I said, God the Father has the greatest part, but he has assigned to you a part. And so if you find that you don't believe, the solution for you is very simple. Believe. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved forever. You will abide in Christ. You will belong to him. The promises of God in Christ, all of them will become eternally valid for you. It's very simple, beloved. Serious, but simple. We must abide in him through believing in him. Once a person has believed then, we must then make a daily choice to put him first and to love him most. We must choose to abide in him. We must choose to seek him. We must choose to listen to what he has to say. And as I said earlier, God's part is primary, even in our ongoing relationship with the Lord. He tells us in Philippians 2.13 that he will give us the will and the desire and the the power to do his will in this world. He, He says to us in 1 Peter that he's given us everything we need for life and godliness, everything we need. And yet, 
he gives us this choice. Work out your salvation with fear and trembling. You must choose to do that. Abide in me. He says it twice already. Verse four, verse seven. We must choose to do that. He says to make your calling and your election sure, Second Peter 1, we must choose to do that. God has assigned to us a choice, and beloved, part of abiding in Christ is making a daily choice to pursue Jesus, to put him first, and to learn to love him most. Bearing the fruit of Jesus, as glorious as that is, is just an implication of the heart of what Jesus is trying to teach us right here. What Jesus is trying to teach us is that the deep and abiding root of the vine is found in daily communion with Christ. The outcome of that communion is what it is. The communion itself is the thing itself. The root is more important than the fruit. Can I get an amen? And the root is daily love, daily communion, daily enjoyment, daily humility before Christ. Everything is right there. Everything is right there. And so with that, Jesus gives a second condition. He says that his words must abide in us. As for God the Father's part, we have already seen multiple times that the teaching of Jesus actually came from God the Father. Jesus said multiple times, you can look at 12, 49, and 50 to see the latest example, but he said multiple times that I hear from the Father and I just speak what the Father gave me to say. The words of Christ are the words of the Father spoken through Christ. And that is absolutely crucial because there's no way to abide in Christ either once for all or over time without those words. Faith comes by what? By hearing. And hearing comes by what? The word of Christ, it says. The gospel. There's no way to abide without hearing the words of Christ. There's no way to abide in Christ without clinging to the words of Christ and valuing the words of Christ. To embrace his words is to embrace him. And God the Father has done his part. He's given us plenty of words to embrace. But beloved, he has given us this part. We have to make choice. We have to embrace those words and more so saturate our lives with those words. The loudest voice in our lives ought to be the voice of Jesus Christ. I wonder as you think about your daily, weekly life, is that true of you? The loudest voice in your life ought to be the voice of Jesus Christ. Books, I read a lot of them. Bible studies, I go through some of them. Podcasts, personally, I listen to almost none of them, but I know some of you do. Other Christian resources, they're good things, but none of them can replace this greatest thing, and that is the living speech of God through Jesus Christ much of which we have contained in the Bible itself. And so again, I say to you, beloved, we must build a life that is saturated with the words of Christ. Those who love him, listen to him. And we listen to him by his word. We must, as Paul put it in Colossians 3, 17, we must allow it to dwell in us richly. We must allow it to teach us and heal us and guide us along the way. We must allow it to teach us how God thinks so that we think the way God thinks, or that we at least understand the way God thinks. And trust me, he does not think the way we think. His ways are not our ways. We have to let the word of God teach us to feel as God feels and have passion for the right things, both good and evil things. God loves and God hates. We need to understand why that is. And then come into his affection. All your emotions will come into their fullness when you begin to feel along with your father. 
We need to let his word shape our will so that we, over time, really, truly want what God wants. Oh, how powerful life gets when we want what God wants. We have to allow Jesus to abide in us by letting his living words abide in us, beloved. His voice ought to be the loudest voice in our lives. Condition one, we abide in Christ. We have a relationship with him. We are in communion with him. Condition two, we joyfully receive his words day by day by day by day. One drip at a time, one drip at a time, and the ocean fills up over time. We love his words. We value his words. We listen to his words. Third condition, we must learn to ask for whatever we desire. As for God's part here, it is he who made a way for sinners like us to be transformed into saints by his grace and then to give us the right of access to his very throne so that we can talk with him and walk with him and ask him whatever we want through the blood of Jesus and by the escorting presence of the Holy Spirit. As Paul wrote, for through Jesus we all have access in one spirit to God the Father. By the grace of God, beloved, we as believers, as people who have faith in Jesus, we literally have the right to access the throne of God, to walk with him, to talk with him about anything and everything, and to make many requests of him. Here's what Jesus is saying. If you want the promise of John 15, 7, take advantage of that right. He is insisting, you want to bear the fruit of the vine, you must ask Here's one way that we are not like branches. We are living beings, right? We are living branches. We are not dormant. We are not completely passive. We have a part. And the way I see it is that the word of God is like the nutrients running through the vine. And the way the branch sucks the nutrients down is by asking, Father, please give me your word. Please do your will in my life. Father, please bear this fruit. We're the kind of branches that must actually ask for the fruit. James says that some of you don't have what, you're, what you want because you don't ask. That's James 4 too. It's not the only reason, but it is a reason. And so Jesus says we must ask. As he shapes our minds and our hearts and our wills by his presence and by his words, then we need to learn to make a life of prayer. We need to learn to talk to him at all times about all things. We need to learn this little phrase in 1 Thessalonians 5, to pray without ceasing. We need to learn what it means to wake up and have a mind for God and have a heart for God. And as we're getting ready for our day and showering and having breakfast and everything, there's at least a part of us that's in communion with God. And while we're engaging in our day, we're talking to God, we're walking with God. When we succeed and when we fail, we're walking with God. When we suffer and when we succeed, we're walking with God. In all things, we're learning to walk with God. And this is not obsession. This is love, beloved. You know what the Lord wants for each of us? Constant, unbroken consciousness of the communion we have with him. That's what he wants for us. He wants us to have every moment of our lives the conscious knowledge that he loves us and that he's with us and that he cares for us, and that he wants to hear from us. Now the word Jesus uses here for ask is a strong word. Greek is a a, a lovely language. It has usually several words for the same thing. The word choice here is a very strong one. It can be translated to beg for something. 
It can be translated to call for something, to crave or desire something. Certain contexts, it is actually translated to demand something. I don't think we should arrogantly demand of God, but I do want us to hear the intensity of this word. He's saying, ask with all your heart, really mean it. Ask with passion, with intensity, with fervency. Don't be afraid to express the fullness of your heart to your Father. Ian Bounds, the 19th century pastor and author, really understood this point. He said that without fervency, there is no true prayer. Let me read this for you, and I put it up on the, on the PowerPoint for you as well. Ian Bounds said, prayers must be red hot. It is the fervent prayer that is effectual and that avails. Coldness of spirit hinders praying. Prayer cannot live in a wintry atmosphere. Chilly surroundings freeze our petitioning and dry up the springs of supplication. It takes fire to make prayers go. Warmth of soul creates a favorable atmosphere to prayer because it is favorable to fervency. By flame, prayer ascends to heaven. Yet fire is not fuss nor heat noise. Heat is intensity. It is something that glows and burns. Heaven is a mighty poor market for ice. I like that phrase. I really like that phrase a lot. Whether or not you feel like you pray with that kind of fervency, I can tell you exactly how to get it. And it's simply to abide in Christ. It's very simple. All this is profoundly relational. Get near to Jesus, spend time with Jesus, listen to Jesus, and in time, over time, he will set your soul on fire with the very flame of heaven. His presence and his words will both shape your prayers and impassion your prayers. They will shape your prayers by teaching you how to think, how to feel, what to say. They'll shape your prayers by teaching you to pray according to what is pleasing to him, and his words and his presence will impassion your prayers because Jesus himself is a holy God. He is a consuming fire. You ever been really, really near to a massive fire? What happens to your body? You get warm, don't you? In fact, we're limited beings, so what I have to do when I get near a big old bonfire in the wintertime especially is I turn around like a marshmallow because I don't want to overcook on any particular side, right? When you're near to heat, you get hot. When you're near to Jesus, the flame of heaven will catch your soul on fire. It will happen. But at this point, I think we really need to hear what Ian Bounds said. He said that fire is not fussing and being heated with the heat of Christ is not just about making a bunch of noise. Sometimes fervency appears like just a flicker and sometimes it appears like a blazing fire. Sometimes a soul that is aflame with the flame of Jesus is visibly fervent, visibly excited, visibly exuberant. Other times, People I have seen, even this week I saw a man who I thought was filled with the fervency of Jesus and he just looked so calm and so quiet, so peaceful, still. There was a sort of glow about him. That also is fervency. Fervency is not about outward manifestation. It's about the kind of inward conviction that comes from walking in communion with Christ when you have a sense that you've discerned his mind and felt his heart and know his will, you pray in such a way that you have confidence before him and you have passion, and that we call fervency. Beloved, I pray that you can see that Jesus is more interested now in teaching us this way of life than all the things that will come about because of it. He's more interested in teaching us the root than in focusing on the fruit, but the fruit matters. The fruit is a means by which he's teaching us deeper things. 
And so he asks us not just to pray about certain things, but he asks us to pray about whatever, right? About everything. He wants us to learn what it means to talk to him about anything and everything. And I mean anything and everything. He wants us to learn what it means to pray about small things and big things, about personal things and corporate things, about temporary things and eternal things. He wants us to learn to seek his face and to see his heart and to express the fullness of our desires in his presence and by his spirit. Please hear me. His heart is not to teach us techniques for how to get things out of God. His heart is to teach us how to live in communion with God. And when you live in communion with God, pow, out pops the fruit. It just happens. It happens. But the actual main thing here is the root. The root is our communion with the Father. As we learn this way of life, to abide in him, to let his words abide in us, and to ask according to his will, he makes a stunning promise to us. He says, it will be done for you. That's a promise. More literally, the Greek reads, it will become for you. These things will come to pass. They will come into being for you as you pray. Beloved, Jesus Christ is no small person. He is no tribal deity. He is the Alpha and the Omega. He is the beginning and the end. He is the one through whom the Father created everything. He is the one who sustains all things by the word of his power, both now and forevermore. He is sovereign over all things, absolutely. Sovereign over all persons, absolutely. There is nothing in existence that is not under the control of Jesus. And it is he who said... Ask whatever you wish, and it will be done for you. Now, we're left with the choice here, because either those words are true or Jesus is a liar. I don't see any gray area here. Either these words are meaningful, or Jesus is deceiving us. But Jesus is not a liar, and so, therefore, this promise is true. And since this promise is true, I think we have to begin walking in it by taking it at face value and believing that he means what he says. We have to start there. Faith starts by believing the words of Jesus. We have to look at that prayer and say, that is a massive prayer. And I don't feel like it always happens in my life, but I'm gonna choose to believe it because Jesus is not a liar. Jesus is the truth and he tells the truth. And so with that though, I do wanna address just for a minute this lingering question that's probably there in our hearts or it's gonna be there in our hearts. So might as well address it. And the question is, How do I understand those times in my life though where I do pray, where I feel like I'm abiding, where I feel like I'm reading his word and I feel like I am asking him for what I want and yet I don't get what I'm asking for? How do I understand those times? Well, an entire sermon could be preached in answer to that question. That's an important question. Books have literally been written in answer to that question but I wanna just wrap off six things here for you pretty quickly and encourage you, the PowerPoint will be available on, by Monday. I encourage you to get the PowerPoint, talk about this in your families, in your community groups, whatever. But let me just wrap up some reasons why we might pray and then not receive exactly what we asked for. First of all, as much as we think we might be, it could be that we're not actually praying according to the Father's will. When we ask for something that is not in accordance to the Father's will, the most merciful thing he could be could do for us is to say no. You know what? No can be the best thing that ever happens in your life. I think back to the things I asked God to do that he said no to, and if he had said yes, my life would have taken a very different direction, and I'm grateful for his no in my life. 
He really knows what he's doing, and sometimes he says no because he's got to shape our heart, shape our mind, shape our perception of his will until we're praying in accordance with his will. Second possibility is that we are actually asking according to the will of what he wants to do, but we have wrong motives. His will about our hearts, his will about our motives is a a little off in us, as James said. Sometimes you don't receive because you don't ask. Other times you ask with wrong motives and so God's not gonna fulfill your wrong motives. Again, he is a great father. He's not gonna harm us through answering our prayers. And so his greater desire is not so much to, to punish us, but to shape us, to say, no, not quite that, son, not quite that, daughter. We gotta still work on this until I fulfill your prayer, until I cause you to bear this fruit. Third thing, it could be that we have unconfessed sin in our lives that is hindering our prayers. Peter talks about this in 1 Peter. And when God does not answer our prayers because of our sin, the way I understand this is not so much that he's punishing us, but that he's inviting us and disciplining us and saying to us, listen, I can't bear fruit through a poisoned branch. I can't do that. That would not be kind or loving of me. That would not be godlike of me. And so what I care about mainly is you. I don't care about what I get out of you, I care about you. So what I wanna do is heal you, transform you, clean you up, make that vein inside the branch clear and free of any obstructions so that you can bear much fruit. Fourth, it may be that the Father sees a greater good for us and says no, because he wants to give us that greater good. I think of the Apostle Paul, most likely he was going blind and so he prayed three times, Father, please remove this thorn in the flesh from me. Please remove this thorn in the flesh from me. Father, my life is all about reading and writing and preaching. I need to see. Please remove this thorn from me. And the father said, no, Paul, I have a better plan. And here's my plan. I'm gonna use your weakness to display my strength. I want people to look at you and not say, wow, Paul is amazing. I want people to look at you and say, wow, Paul's God is amazing. Can you imagine that he'd use a man with that weakness to do this ministry? I just cannot imagine how much fruit came out of that no in Paul's life. You know, I live with a person who took this as her life verse 20, 30 years ago. That whole experience in Paul's life has shaped my wife's life and shaped so many other lives. God was merciful, beloved, to say no to Paul in that case. His no bore much, much fruit in the world. Fifth, it could be that as with the prophet Daniel, the Father has actually granted our request, but that there are spiritual dynamics in play that are delaying the answer. You may remember, Daniel prayed, an angel finally came, and the angel said to Daniel, listen, the moment you prayed, the Father said yes, but I was in a bit of a war. There were things that had to be worked out before you could see the answer with your eyes. So sometimes God has said yes, and we're just not receiving it yet, and that, that, that calls for faith and patience. Sixth, it may be, this is sort of my other category here, it may be that there's some reason that we'll never know that God thought best to delay the answer for us, to cause us to learn to wait upon him and have faith in him. You know, there's no faith or joy quite like the faith and joy that can wait on God without knowing what he's up to and be okay with that. When you can say to the Father, I don't know what you're doing, And you know what, Father, I don't even need to know what you're doing. It's okay with me if you never tell me what you're doing. I'm okay because I trust you. Oh, how the Father values that depth of trust, that level of trust. Sometimes he delays answers because he's trying to build greater things inside of us. At the end of the day, beloved, our Father really does know best. 
And so we have to learn to pray without ceasing in the way that Jesus prayed when he was in the garden. He said, Lord, Father, if there's any way you can remove this cup from me, then please let's do that. Nevertheless, what I really want is your will and not my will. And the father said, no, son, you must drink the cup. And Jesus drank that cup. I think the the heart of every prayer of every true believer is, Father, please let your will be done. Father, please get your way. And in the midst of the process, shape me so that I love you, so that I care about you, so that I want what you want more than I want anything. The heart of every true believer just wants what God wants, beloved. And I think it would help us if we do two things here. Believe that Jesus means it when he says, ask whatever you wish and I will do it for you, and then relax in the process, like trust him in the process. He doesn't need you to manage the process with him. He knows what he's doing. So take him at his word and trust him through the process. As we abide in Christ and let his words abide in us, as we learn to ask whatever we wish and God begins to answer prayers and we begin to bear fruit inside and outside, Jesus says that three escalating things happen. First of all, he says that we will bear much fruit. You wanna know how to bear fruit? This is how to bear fruit. In verse five, he said, whoever is in me will bear fruit. In verses seven and following, he taught us how to do it, how to do it. And his promise is sure. If you will live this way of life, you will bear his fruit, period. As I said last week, it's actually impossible to be in Jesus and not bear the fruit of Jesus. That's impossible. Second thing, Jesus said that when we bear his fruit, we prove that we are in the vine. We prove that we belong to him. We prove that we know him. We prove that we're walking with him and talking with him and listening to him and obeying him. I've told you many times that when an apple tree bears apples, it does not become an apple tree. It shows that it's an apple tree. It displays the fact. If you have some tree in your yard and you don't know what kind of tree it is, well, come springtime or fall time, when it begins to bear fruit, you're gonna know exactly what kind of tree it is because its fruit is gonna prove what kind of tree it is. And Jesus said that that's what our fruit is about. When we call upon his name and he gives his yes to us and he does stuff through us, it proves that he is in us. It's mainly, in other words, about him, which leads us to the third thing. When we bear fruit, when we prove our relationship to Jesus, the the crescendo of it all is that the Father is glorified in us and through us. Please notice that Jesus does not say that we glorify the Father, but that the Father is glorified in us because he is responsible for everything. He caused us to be in the vine. He, in his love, pruned us so that we could be fruitful. He prepared us for everything he calls for from us. He put his words into us. He gave his very self to us, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. He called us in certain ways to do certain things and gave us power to walk in obedience to him. And when we do all that, the fruit comes out and the Father gets all the glory because he frankly did all the work. And we get something too, but we'll have to wait for a minute to see what we get. Since these things are so, beloved, this way of life is the way of life that Jesus wants to teach us. Look what he says at the end of verse nine. So simple, so profound. Abide in my love. For the third time now, he commands us. Verse five, verse seven, verse nine. Abide in my love. Now that I've told you what to do, do it. Now that the Father has so ably accomplished his part, play your part. Now that I've taught you how to play your part, play your part with passion. 
Play your part with faith. Play your part with peace. Play your part with love for me. And note the context of this. He says in the beginning of verse nine, as the Father loved me, so have I loved you. In other words, Jesus lavishes his love upon his own in the same way that the Father lavishes his love upon Jesus. And if you'll take the time to meditate on that, that will take your breath away. How did the Father lavish his love upon Jesus? Well, without hesitation, without reservation, without limit, and without end. The Father poured all of his pleasure on the Son forever. And the Son is saying through faith in me, I am gonna do the same thing to you, so abide in my love. Come live this way of life with me. Come enter into the joy of the Father with me. In verse 10, he gives a little bit of definition to this command. You'll see what he says there. If you keep my commands, then you will abide in my love. That's what it looks like to abide in my love. Keep my commands. Even as I have kept my Father's commands and abide in his love. There's a lot that needs to be said about this, but I don't want to complicate the process here because I think it's very, very simple. If we love Jesus, beloved, we're going to draw near to him and listen to him and follow him. And if we don't, we won't. If we love Jesus, we're going to seek power from Jesus to obey his will. And if we don't, we won't. If we love Jesus, we're going to want more than anything in this life to be connected with him, to know his words and to, and to bear his fruit. And if we don't, we won't. It's very, very simple. There's nothing, no need to complicate this. If you love him, you will listen to him. If you love him, you, you will follow him. If you love him, you will bear his fruit. So hear his commandment. Just hear it with all the love with which he intends it. Come and abide in my love. Come and learn my way of life. As we learn to live Jesus' way of life, there is another outcome for us. Look at verse 11. These things I have spoken to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be full. The heart of Jesus for us, beloved, is that we would know, that we would know, that we would know the fullness of his joy. His joy is the communion he shares with the Father. That's the heart, the fountain, the root of his joy. The delight of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit in one another is the joy of Jesus. And he wants us to have that joy. The joy of Jesus is also the joy of obedience. You know, when Jesus called his disciples and they followed him, Jesus did the will of the Father and he gained the joy of the Father. When Jesus taught and healed people, he did the will of the Father and he gained the joy of the Father. When Jesus told the wind and the waves to stop and they obeyed him, he did the will of the Father and he got the joy of the Father. When Jesus surrendered to the cross and died and was buried and raised himself again from the dead, he did the will of the Father and he got the joy of the Father. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. His joy is the joy of communion and the joy of obedience. It's the joy of communion experienced and the joy of communion proven through daily life. And he wants that joy to be inside of us. That's what he wants. That's actually what he is after. That we would know the joy of walking with him personally day by day and also walking in his will and doing his will above everything. David once prophesied in Psalm 16, speaking for Jesus to the Father, and he said this, you make known to me the path of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand, Father, there are pleasures forevermore. And now we see in John 15, 16, and we'll really see it in 17, 
that Jesus wants his people to come fully into that joy. That's what he wants for us. I want to talk about having a sense of purpose in life, a sense of happiness and joy in life. Come into the way of the life of Jesus and you will know a joy that will never, ever fade away and that nobody can steal from you and no circumstance can take from you and no health problem can rob from you. You will know true and lasting joy. Beloved, I don't know everything Jesus plans to do in this season of our lives. I do know that as a church, this is one of the most important seasons we have gone through since this church was started. But what I do know is this. I do know that Jesus' greatest aim is to build this way of life in us. That's what he's primarily up to. If we, if it is God's will for us to acquire that Saxon property and by some miracle he provides, I've been saying $2 million, but Ace has been telling me to pray for $2.1 million. So I will, I just said if I, if I, if, if, 2.1 comes in, will you take me out to lunch? That's all I've said. And I'm sure that he will. But if God, that would take an absolute miracle. If God does that, then praise be to his name. But what I know is that the process is gonna be more important than the outcome, and he's gonna use all that to build our faith and heighten our joy. If it's God's will that instead of purchasing that property, we lease a part of the property for now, the monthly needs are gonna stretch us a little bit, the build-out's gonna stretch us a lot a bit, But in the midst of it, the reason Jesus stretches us is because he's trying to stretch our faith, not our dollars. He doesn't need our dollars, but he wants to stretch our faith. He wants us to know his joy. If it is the will of Jesus that we pass on this opportunity and seek some other opportunity, I want to promise you something. Absolutely promise you something. Whatever God has for us is going to stretch us. This is how he does it. He says, here, people, Hang out between the Red Sea, a mountain, and a deadly army, and now pray and wait upon me. And then he does unusual things. He does great things so that everybody knows that the name of God has been manifested in their midst. He is going to stretch us no matter what the details. And so, beloved, I want us to understand that the details are less important than the stretching. The faith is what he's really after. Buildings come and buildings go. No matter what we acquire, no matter what we build, it's going to be temporary. Buildings can be lost, tornadoes hit stuff, right? Things get destroyed, uh, uh, properties get sold. If nothing else, Jesus is gonna return and everything on this earth is gonna vanish away. Buildings are temporary and even ministries are temporary. Preaching and teaching is central to the gospel now, but when Jesus comes, everybody will know as they have been known and there will be no more need of preaching and teaching. There will be no more need of evangelism and mercy ministry. There will be no more need of biblical counseling because the ultimate counselor will have healed us and transformed us fully into his image. Even ministries are temporary, beloved. But I'll tell you what is not temporary. That is the faithfulness of God, the faith and trust he builds with his people, and the fruit he bears through his people. Look at John 15, 16. Jesus said he appointed us to go and bear fruit that lasts, endures, remains forever. That's what he's really up to. The building, resources, labor, all that is an excuse to build faith, beloved. It's an excuse to see the glory of Jesus and surrender our lives to Jesus. And I pray with all of my heart that we'll be awake to that now. I pray that we'll see that what he's building is a people and not just a building. The building is an excuse to build the people. And it just amazes me as I stand back as your preaching pastor and look at his work. I planned out the John series 18 months ago. 
I went away for two days. I prayed, I fasted, I read John a couple times. I divided it into preachable sections. I came up with working titles and texts for every sermon, and most of those titles and texts have remained just the same as what I wrote 18 months ago. I had no idea what Jesus would be doing when we were in John 13 to 17, no idea, but he knew. He absolutely knew what he was doing. And what he's doing is building a way of life in us, so pay attention to John 14, 12 to 14, John 15, John 16, and John 17. May we be awake to what he is doing in us. And now, let's pray that he would help us with that. Our Father, I love you so much, and I'm so grateful for your word. I'm so grateful that you spoke to Jesus and through Jesus to those disciples then, and I'm so grateful that you have preserved this word and used it to speak into the lives of your people for the last 20 centuries. And I'm so profoundly grateful that you have seen it fit to bring this word to us now. Surely one of the most sacred words, sacred teachings that Jesus ever taught. And I'm grateful to you, Father. I thank you for loving us like this. I thank you for your presence here with us in our midst. I thank you for investing these words into our lives. I thank you for the presence and power of the Holy Spirit whom you have given us so that we will care about what you've said and embrace what you've said and walk in the things that you have said. I thank you for all the fruit that you will bear because of what you're gonna do through this message today. I thank you that as we walk in the things you have taught us, we are going to increase in fruit to the glory of your name and yet, I'm so grateful, Father, that your eyes are on the true prize, which is our communion with you. Through our sin, we were alienated from you, cut off from God and without hope in the world, but through Christ, you have brought us so close to yourself that we can ask whatever we wish and receive it from your hand, and I am just so grateful to you. So thank you, Father, for teaching us, and I pray that you'd help us now to pick up this word and walk in it for your glory and for the fullness of our joy. In Jesus' name, amen.